Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, this is a hearing on the nominations of Ms. Kimberly Breyer of Virginia to be the Assistant Secretary of State for, the Western, for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Mr. Kenneth George of Texas, to be U.S. Ambassador to the Oriental Republic of Uruguay, and Mr. Joseph Mondello of New York to be the Ambassador to the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. We thank you for being here. We thank you for your willingness to serve our country. Uh, before the ranking member and I begin our opening remarks, we have uh, distinguished guests with us who will be introducing uh, one of our nominees, uh, Senator Cornyn of, of Texas, uh, will be introducing uh, Mr. George, along with yeah, Congressman Sessions as well, will be introducing him. And then we're also joined by Congressman Peter King, who's here today. Thank you, sir, for coming and uh, for being uh, with us here today. Obviously, uh, I think you're interested in, in our nominee from New York. So, so we thank you for coming. And so uh, I'll, I guess I'll begin by uh, recognizing Senator Cornyn. I mean, you've got a busy day ahead. Thank you, Chairman Rubio and uh, Ranking Member Senator Menendez. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Ken George, who's been nominated by the President to serve as a U.S. Ambassador for the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Ken has served in the federal government before under President Ronald Reagan as Assistant Secretary and Director General of the U.S and Foreign Commercial Service in the Department of Commerce. On top of holding these prestigious positions, he has served on numerous city, state, and professional boards and commissions back in Texas, as well as chairman and CEO of several public and private corporations. Since 2009, for example, he's been the owner and manager of Blue Harbor Plantation and Blue Harbor Tropical Arboretum in Honduras. This role has exposed him to social, political, and business contacts and contexts within Latin America, and I'm sure his experiences will serve him well in Uruguay. Ken and his wife, Tricia, and I first met when I was serving as a district judge in San Antonio, Texas, so we, we go way back. But Ken, our paths crossed again when Ken served in the Texas legislature in 1998. Over the last 30 years, I'm glad our careers have overlapped so often. I've gotten the chance to know Ken, and I can say from firsthand experience, he's more than qualified and generally a genuinely great fit for this position. Uruguay is a country of roughly three and a half million people, and it stands out among its Latin American neighbors for its strong democratic institutions, as well as its high per capita income and comparatively lower levels of corruption, poverty, and inequality. Over the last decade, the U.S. and Uruguay have forged closer trade and investment ties and have worked together to promote international peace and security. In 2005, as the committee knows, the country signed a bilateral investment treaty, and in 2007, we signed an important trade and investment framework agreement. We are Uruguay's fourth largest trading partner, and in 2017, our exports to Uruguay totaled $1.6 billion, resulting in a sizable U.S. trade surplus. U.S.-Uruguay merchandise trade has increased by 90% since 2007, and its U.S. foreign direct investment and U.S. foreign direct investment in Uruguay has increased dramatically as well. These are good signs that our effective diplomacy is paying dividends. Strategically located between South America's largest economies, Argentina and Brazil, Uruguay maintains a favorable investment climate that does not discriminate against foreign investors. As America's diplomat there, Ken will be crucial to ensuring the atmosphere is maintained and nurtured. A particular interest will be keeping a close eye on China's influence in Uruguay as they extend their influence throughout South America and around the world. There have been reports about the Chinese 
interests in harbor projects there, and given the country's economic and military aggression, aggressiveness in other parts of the globe, we have to monitor these developments closely. In the international sphere, Uruguay promotes democracy and human rights and is one of the largest per capita contributors contributors to UN peacekeeping missions in places like the Congo. Again, Ken will be pivotal in ensuring this and other international partnerships flourish. I know a group of US Air Force colonels recently visited the Uruguayan Ministry of Defense to discuss peacekeeping, and I'm sure Ken, Ken will be key in facilitating future similar meetings. Finally, let me say that Ken George's civil service is extensive and is rooted in his passion to serve his country. In his new role, he will collaborate with stakeholders including the White House, Congress, and the State Department to advance our nation's interests, as well as strengthen our relationship with the people and government of Uruguay and support continued development of democratic institution, institutions there. Uruguay is fortunate indeed to have such a strong proponent of democratic principles and the rule of law serve as our U.S. Ambassador. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez, for your consideration of this excellent nominee. I know he's eager and excited to serve his country once again in this new role. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you, Senator. And uh, it's Texas, they always do everything big. So we have two people from Texas here today, Congressman Sessions. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. And Ranking Member Menendez, it was so good to visit with you earlier about not only the success of, of this uh, subcommittee and the committee, but also the kind of people who are brought forth to be before you today. Mr. Chairman, I, I stand uh, in support of the gentleman from Texas, Dallas, Texas, uh, Ken George. Mr. George, I've known for 30 years. I've known him in business. I've known him in his professional attributes uh, as he has a great name across Dallas, Texas, including his academic credentialing. Uh, Ken, a few years ago, went back and got his master's degree when, didn't, when he did not have to, simply to tighten himself up on the attributes of doing business and academia today. Mr. George has an opportunity today to be with his beautiful young wife, Tricia, uh, and two of his sons, Kenneth and Clement. Uh, he also has uh, two other children. Uh, all three of his young boys uh, are Eagle Scouts, uh, and two of them serve our country, have served our country honorably in the United States Navy and United States Marine Corps. Mr. George, in particular today, brings what I believe is a strong understanding of not only the free enterprise system, but America, doing business uh, internationally. Mr. George is no stranger to not only doing business internationally from his days of service uh, to uh, from the Commerce uh, Department, but also in his wide range of activities from Dallas, Texas. He is sought after not only from a perspective of understanding business, but also the relationships that there go to also. I spoke with Mr. Menendez earlier about me growing up in uh, several years in Bethesda, Maryland. When I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, I had an opportunity to have a scoutmaster whose father was the ambassador to the United States from Uruguay, Hector Luisi. Mr. Luisi served uh, his great nation, Uruguay, for a number of years, and so I grew up knowing about the great nation, the sovereign nation of Uruguay, its people, its history, its heritage, the pride of authorship of their relationship with the United States. And so it came uh, as a particular delight for me when my dear friend Ken George was nominated by the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, 
to become the United States ambassador to a country that I not only had learned about as a young man, but that I know the people who were there also. And so I had an opportunity to uh, link up the gentleman, Mr. George, with Hector Luisi, who is the son, who still stands uh, in pride of authorship of his great nation. And I will tell you that Mr. George will be a strong attribute of not only the credentialing of America, but perhaps more importantly, the honest, open uh, atmosphere by which the American people approach the Southern Hemisphere for them to know that we value them not only as sovereign nations, but want to be friends with them and to have them and have them see a better life as we exist uh, with the United States of America. And I thank both of you, not only for your attention to this detail, but the knowledge that you have allowed uh, some of Ken's friends, uh, Senator Cornyn and myself, to stand up as a strong uh, attribute of Kenneth George, Ambassador to Uruguay from the United States of America. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you for coming over here today, and thank you, Senator Cornyn. And, and thank you, Congressman King, for being here as well in, in support of, uh, of your nominee. Uh, I guess you're here to be supportive. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. You gotta ask, you never like those weddings. You know, you gotta make sure, you still have to ask the question. But, uh, but we appreciate all of you being here. And um, today's hearing is, is opportune. And I know if you need to run, uh, thank you. Uh, today's uh, hearing is opportune as we, we focus on the Western Hemisphere. And I thank uh, the ranking member and the chairman for making it a full committee hearing and not just a subcommittee hearing. As everyone knows, the ranking member uh, has a deep interest in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and many years of experience in defending democracy, and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to chair this alongside him today. Uh, for Ms. Breyer, confirmed uh, as the Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere, you, of course, would be shepherding uh, U.S. policies in the Western Hemisphere at a, type, at a time that I think is as interesting as any in recent memory. Um, as is part of the trend globally, there is a real challenge to democracy. We see the world increasingly being divided into a battle between autocracy and democracy, and our hemisphere is no exception to that. Obviously, Cuba has not had democracy for a very long time. Uh, Venezuela has seen its democracy blatantly stolen, and we are all well familiar with the tragedy that has um, developed there. And lately, Nicaragua uh, is a place that isn't necessarily a model of democracy, but in the last couple of months, the people of Nicaragua have begun to express how strongly they feel about the erosion of democracy there. Uh, all of those three uh, continue to bear watching uh, in, the, in the months to come, and, and you will be shepherding administration policy. In addition to that, we have geopolitical competitors and adversaries of the United States uh, continuing to try to engage in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we know that China is bribing and unfairly investing, and I say unfairly because their, their investments are one-way streets, throughout the hemisphere aggressively stepping into the, into the vacuum that they argue the United States has left behind. Uh, the result has been in the short term that at least two countries in this hemisphere have already de-recognized uh, Taiwan and Panama and the Dominican Republic and open relations with China instead. The long-term implications, of course, are that as part of these investments, quote unquote, that they make in these countries, uh, they demand and push these countries to vote with them in international forums like the United Nations. Russia is in our hemisphere, and, and it's largely looking for opportunities to create uh, intelligence agreements and basing agreements. And they do this for a number of reasons, to collect on U.S. interests, but also to potentially have uh, influence over governments in the region. 
and, and I think that uh, we should be prepared uh, to see and to uh, help our allies counteract any sort of influence campaigns that they might be trying to undertake to undermine democracy in the upcoming elections in numerous countries, including Mexico and Brazil and, and Colombia this weekend. It's also a region that faces the threat of transnational crime. We've known about that for a long time and the challenges that Colombia has faced, but these uh, record cocaine hauls and the record cocaine production in Colombia, uh, which uh, we've seen over the last few years, has put tremendous strain on our allies in Guatemala and in Honduras. Uh, people would be shocked to learn that Costa Rica is now facing a very serious threat. We don't traditionally think of Costa Rica as a place that faces any sort of threat from transnational crime and violence, but they are deeply concerned about the trends there and need our help to get ahead of it. The Dominican Republic and Haiti. A place, Haiti was a place where drug dealers didn't go through for a while because it was too dangerous even for them. But now uh, it is a place where they have somehow, in some way, uh, found the opportunity to traffic through there, through the Caribbean basin, and of course the Dominican Republic as well. But in addition to these challenges, it's also a region that presents us with opportunities. There will be an election this weekend in Colombia. It will be free, it will be democratic, and it will elect a new president. And uh, we don't weigh in on who we prefer in, on, in sovereign democracies. Suffice it to say that no matter who is elected, they'll have some differences of opinion, but by and large, Colombia this weekend will not just elect a democratically elected leader. They will also elect someone who will continue to work with the United States. And Colombia, for all of its challenges, remains a success story as to how U.S. engagement can create allies in the region and around the world who become force multipliers. They are contributing greatly uh, for example, in Honduras, and helping their own uh, forces. From what we've trained them to do, they are now capable enough of going abroad and doing it themselves. Uh, there's opportunity, believe it or not, and it's been underreported in Ecuador. It's still not ideal in terms of what we want to see, but its new president over the la last year and a half has taken measures to restore uh, more openness, more democracy, and careful outreach towards the United States, but that is a, an important opening, and we're, we're happy to see that. We hope those trends will continue. Brazil will have elections next year, and there's obviously been a lot of tumult. But the one thing I always point people to is that in Brazil, the rule of law worked. Uh, to the extent that leaders are being removed, they're being removed through their courts, not through their armies. And that is a huge development, and, and, uh, and hopefully they'll, they'll be able to conduct a very successful election early next year. Chile continues to prosper. Argentina's economy faces some challenges, but it's also a country that has moved into a more pro-American direction, but also one which is trying to engage more openly at economic growth. And I recently had the opportunity to be in Peru, which a nation that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it too has successes. Even though it also removed a president for corruption, it did so through the rule of law. Again, not through a military coup or an assassination, but through its system of laws. And Peru, by the way, takes great pride in the role they play in the world, and it's been a productive one uh, in diplomacy. It is a nation that's not a large nation, but it has a deep diplomatic heritage, and it is why the organization, the informal organization that's come together to confront the challenges of Venezuela is called the Lima Group, because they hosted that first meeting that brought that group together. But I will tell you, and everybody here who cares about the Western Hemisphere, including Ms. Breyer, and of course the ranking member myself know, the one thing we hear often from our allies in the region is they feel neglected and ignored. They feel like we do not pay enough attention to them. This is not a partisan issue. Multiple administrations have been guilty of that. And understandably, there's incredible threats and challenges in other parts of the world, in Asia, in the Middle East. Uh, but 
but the Western Hemisphere is, is important. Uh, something that would be a one in another part of the world would be a five or a 10 because it's so close to us and so deeply impacts us. So there's a lot to do, and I hope we'll continue to pay more attention to this region because it's incredibly important. Um, in the context of all that, Mr. George, Uruguay is a strong democracy. It has a growing middle class. They have challenges. Uh, while they have condemned the Maduro regime, for example, they've resisted isolating it in the international forums. And I hope if confirmed that you will be a voice in continuing to nudge them in the right direction. Democracy should be defending democracies. They've enjoyed strong economic growth over the last 10 years and dramatically decreased the widespread poverty that are seen in some of the other countries in the region. As I said already, they have a large middle class. Their democracy is stable. Uh, but they've also drawn the attention of China. Uh, while the United States is still the largest trading partner with Latin America, China's closing that gap, and I would say unfairly. They bribed their way into many of these countries in the region. And this opens the door for them you know, to continue to further exert its influence over the region. Mr. Mondello, Trinidad and Tobago is a relatively prosperous democracy. Uh, but it also produced more ISIS fighters per capita than any country in the Western Hemisphere. And as ISIS leadership looks to rebuild and reorganize as an insurgency, uh, rather than a, a, an organization that holds large swaths of territory, it's imperative that Trinidad and Tobago continue to focus on countering violent extremists and that we help them. As we were talking about earlier in our meeting, Trinidad, there are numerous daily nonstop flights between uh, Trinidad, Tobago, and Miami, and Kennedy Airport. And, uh, and so we should care a lot about what's happening there. It's very close to home. Uh, unfortunately, Trinidad also continues to side with the Maduro regime at the OAS. And again, that's making it difficult for concerned democracies throughout the hemisphere to pressure Venezuela to return to constitutional order. And I hope if confirmed that you can help us continue to nudge them in the right direction, because once again, democracies should support democracy. Uh, just last month, by the way, Trinidad uh, signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which it just is a Chinese mega project that seeks to entangle developing countries in one-sided trade relationships that ultimately lead to Beijing to call the shots. And their participation in this initiative allows China to continue to extend its financial and political influence deep into the Western Hemisphere and yet another country. We have to develop ways to counter that and to point out to our allies in the region how one-sided these Belt and Road Initiatives are in other parts of the world, and how deeply indebted some countries are left after agreeing to these so-called Chinese gifts that turn out to be uh, not so much of a gift after all. So in closing, I'd say all these positions are going to play an important role in advancing our foreign policy. I want to thank all of you and your families for your commitment to our country and your willingness to serve. The ranking member. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you for agreeing to chair uh, this full committee hearing on nominations for the Western Hemisphere. Uh, as I said to Chairman Carker, uh, I believe these nominees and this Assistant Secretary nominee is as important uh, as the nominees we will be considering tomorrow for other Assistant Secretary positions. Uh, it's been more than 16 months into the administration. And it's good to finally have a nominee for Assistant Secretary to the Western Hemisphere. I'm also pleased to have the ambassadorial nominees for Uruguay and Trinidad and Tobago before us. Congratulations to all of you on your nominations. And we look forward to hearing from you shortly. Uh, as uh, Senator Rubio uh, just did, he did a pretty good uh, hemispheric tour uh, of some of our opportunities and challenges in the Western Hemisphere, something that for 26 years I have been focused on in the House and Senate. 
we have both long argued that the Western Hemisphere does not receive enough attention given its critical importance to the United States as our, in our own hemisphere, uh, in our own uh, neighbors, uh, in our own front yard. As we look across the region, there is a wide range of positive trends at play, a growing middle class, a widely shared belief in democratic values, human rights, and the rule of law, 350 million voters casting ballots across the region in 2018, and the authoritarian governments in Cuba and Venezuela increasingly outliers shunned by their neighbors. However, much of the press attention that the Western Hemisphere has received as late seems to be for all the wrong reasons. I think virtually every member, I would think, on this dais was appalled by the President's comments towards Prime Minister Trudeau over the weekend, especially given that Canada is one of our closest allies on issues spanning the globe, whose sons and daughters in the armed forces of Canada have served alongside our sons and daughters in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and who have died in the cause. Pretty amazing to me the comments that we reserve for one of our closest allies. I'm also outraged by the President using language that we generally reserve for the most ardent adversaries and enemies to criticize Mexico and its people, the second largest export market for the United States goods and services in the world, not in the hemisphere, in the world, the second largest market for the United States goods and services in the world and demand that its government pay for a multi-billion dollar border wall that would be ineffective and a complete waste of taxpayers' dollars. Additionally, I fail to see how the overtly political the ter uh, termination of DACA and the temporary protected status for El Salvador, Honduras, and Haiti is anything more than reckless decisions that threaten to undermine our national security interests in the name of advancing the President's xenophobic anti-immigration agenda. And I am unable to understand how U.S. leadership is strengthened by the President skipping the Summit of the Americas or when the administration's fiscal year 2019 budget request proposes a staggering 42% cut, 42% cut for Latin America. That would decimate the diplomatic and development tools we desperately need to promote stability, prosperity, and security in a region that we live in. I hope we'll hear from the nominee today about how these developments affect our national interests and our national security. Now, beyond these divisive issues, I should know that there's broad bipartisan support for addressing many of the opportunities and challenges in the region. In recent years, members on both sides of the aisle have worked together to address the weak rule of law, sky-high homicide rates, and poverty that fuel instability and migration in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. The United States cannot waver in our engagement and must be sharply focused on monitoring our progress. There's also growing bipartisan concern about China's transactional process and approach to diplomacy in the Western Hemisphere, which offers short-term economic benefits to countries, including Panama and the Dominican Republic, in order to extract political gains that often are not consistent with the United States' national interests. If we do not actively promote our values and interests, other forces within the region and from outside will happily fill the void. And then there is the near universal consensus in the Senate that Venezuela is a failed state run by a criminal government that has stolen elections and used access to food as a political weapon 
collapsed its economy and plundered public finances through widespread corruption, created a humanitarian catastrophe that is fueling a refugee and migration crisis in the region, and committed a series of abuses that increasingly look like crimes against humanity and which deserve scrutiny by the International Criminal Court. For these reasons, I intend to introduce bipartisan legislation that will provide the administration with additional tools to address these challenges. And I'd like to hear from our two nominees to the countries that they have been designated for, uh, how they will work to get these countries to join us at the OAS uh, in voting with us in common cause uh, as it relates to Venezuela. Against this backdrop and in closing, I certainly want to thank our nominees for their willingness to serve our country as well as their families. This is a joint enterprise in every respect of the word, so we appreciate their willingness to uh, sacrifice as well. We look forward to your testimony and the opportunity to ask questions about these policy priorities in our hemisphere. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Mondello, I guess we'll begin with you with your opening statement. Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, distinguished members of the committee, good morning. I am honored to appear before you today, and I would like to begin by expressing my gratitude to President Donald Trump for the faith and confidence he has placed in me. If confirmed, it will be an honor to represent our nation as ambassador to the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. Before beginning my statement, I would like to introduce to you my wife of 54 years, Linda Crabtree Mondello. Linda's support and love, particularly at the beginning of our marriage, when her hard work and efforts helped finance my legal education, she has been the firm foundation upon which any success that I have achieved in life, both personally and professionally, rests. I simply could not be more appreciative of all of her extraordinary sacrifices on my behalf, and, it's, and it is important to me that she shares this moment with me. I also would like you to meet my daughters, Elizabeth, a school teacher, and Lisa, an attorney, who have taken the time from their family and professional responsibilities in order to join their mother and me today. I am very proud of both of them and very grateful for all of their love and support. Finally, I want to express my thanks to all my friends that traveled from New York to be by my side at this hearing, especially Robert Zimmerman and Joseph Cairo and Congressman Peter T. King, their encouragement and guidance throughout this process means more than words can express. Being considered for the, most, for the post of Ambassador of the United States of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago was an extraordinary high point in my life. I could never have envisioned while growing up in very modest circumstances in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, New York, that I would one day appear before the distinguished members of this committee seeking confirmation to this position of great distinction and responsibility. The neighborhood where I spent my childhood was a veritable United Nations of hardworking men and women from virtually every ethnic background, race, and creed. While these wonderful people differed in many ways, they were all united in their desire to achieve their own piece of the American dream for, their, for themselves and for their families. I know that if my parents were here to witness this moment, they would be proud that their fine example has enabled their son to pursue a career that in many respects evokes the dreams and aspirations of generations of Americans who came to these shores in search of a better way of life. My mother was a very religious woman whose family came to America from San Germán, Puerto Rico. She passed on to me a pride in this, her Spanish heritage, 
uh, that I have tried to instill in my own children and grandchildren. My father pursued a craft that has long since been extinct. He was a linotype operator for the Brooklyn Eagle, the Herald Tribune, and the New York Times. A proud union member, my father never missed an opportunity to instill in me the value of hard work. Together they raised my sister and me in an environment where faith, family, and love of country governed our daily lives. Being determined to live by the example that they set for me, I embarked upon a career that offered me a wide range of experiences, including service as a school teacher, probation officer, government agent, assistant district attorney, local elected official, political leader, and private practicing attorney. I'm also very proud that I served my nation as a member of the United States Army, the Air National Guard, and the New York Guard. I am truly excited by the prospect of serving our nation again if I am confirmed as ambassador to one of our most important Caribbean partners. I am firmly committed to advancing the long-established goals of the U.S. mission to Trinidad and Tobago. Paramount among these is assisting the efforts of the national security to stem the surge in violent crime and fight illicit human and drug trafficking. Clearly, sex trafficking and forced labor are critical national and regional issues that impact Trinidad and Tobago's standing in the international community and its government's efforts to diversify and grow the national economy through increased trade. In addition, Trinidad and Tobago's location astride vital shipping lanes has made it a transshipment point for South American drugs destined for the United States and Europe. The U.S. mission must, in my view, play a leadership role in the host government's efforts to reverse Trinidad and Tobago's growing involvement as a destination, transit point, and source for adults and children ensnared into these illicit activities. The increasing involvement of international crime organizations in human and drug trafficking coupled with systematic corruption are significant impediments to achievement of these important goals. I will, if confirmed, work to facilitate stronger economic ties with a nation that thinks that thanks to its large reserves of oil and natural gas is one of our nation's most important trading partners with a per capita GDP that in this hemisphere is only exceeded by Canada and the United States. If confirmed, I will work diligently to support the Trinidadian government in its efforts to diversify the local economy beyond the energy sector into agricultural exports and the expansion of Trinidad and Tobago's role as a regional finance center. Needless to say, the opportunities for U.S. companies to participate in this economic diversification are myriad. If, con if confirmed, I will work closely with government officials to identify key products and services that are well-suited for expansion into U.S. markets. Central to this effort will be identifying nation synergies within our two economies and then foregoing and forging relationships between American businesses and their appropriate counterparts in Trinidad and Tobago. Overshadowing all these concerns are the joint efforts of our two nations to reverse the influence of Islamic extremist groups among the island nation's small Muslim minority. Of particular concern are the conditions that led to the extraordinary high recruitment rate from Trinidad and Tobago that ISIS enjoyed at the peak of its power and influence. Given my background in law enforcement, public service, and the law, I believe I possess the skills and experience necessary 
to build relationships and foster cooperative initiatives between our two nations in both the public and private sector. If confirmed, the members of this committee can rest assured that I will work closely with Congress as we pursue our nation's long-standing goals in the Caribbean. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you. Ms. Breyer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee. It's an honor to be here with you today as President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. I'm humble and thankful to the President and to Secretary Pompeo who have entrusted me with this important opportunity. I also want to thank former Secretary Tillerson. Working with him was one of the great highlights of my career. I want to thank my parents who could not be with us today from Massachusetts. I am here because their sacrifices allowed me to have opportunities that they did not. I could not be here without the love and support of my husband Peter and my daughter Emma, who are an inspiration to me in their unflagging support. I'm also grateful for having the opportunity to learn from so many colleagues, mentors, and teachers, too numerous to name here. I have had the privilege of knowing six recent Assistant Secretaries of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, and many have taken the time already to offer me wise counsel. I recently had the pleasure of meeting a seventh who described to me how the job is akin to playing tennis with five ball machines on the other side of the court. Indeed, the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs is as described. It covers a hemisphere and is home to 29 embassies, 23 consulates, and 30 countries. It's a leading bureau on many issues at the forefront of the administration's agenda, including ensuring free and fair trade, combating transnational criminal organizations, deterring irregular migration, and working through alliances to enhance, enhance U.S. prosperity, security, and to promote democratic governance. This region is often underappreciated in its strategic importance to the United States, as we are often consumed with other priorities. I firmly believe and fully commit that we must get it right in the Western Hemisphere if we, to have, we are to have success in other parts of the world. I am and will be, if confirmed, a tireless advocate for the importance of this region. The national security strategy lays out that our economic prosperity is central to U.S. national security. Our prosperity is deeply linked to the Western Hemisphere, home to half of the nations with whom we have free trade agreements. Overall trade with the Western Hemisphere is nearly three times as much as it is with China. The administration's Western Hemisphere policy is rightfully dynamic and robust. Interaction with Mexico is intense, daily, and institutional. I am committed to ensuring that the administration's focus on Mexico will bear fruit in a positive way. The administration has been and remains steadfast on Venezuela. As Vice President Pence said recently, Venezuela shows us the tragedy of tyranny. This unprecedented challenge requires robust diplomacy, creativity, and more than anything, fierce resolve. Last year, the administration announced its Cuba policy, which seeks to support the Cuban people, human rights, and not to allow U.S. economic interaction to aid the repressive security services. The administration has continued support for the U.S. strategy in Central America, in fact, expanding it by aligning more closely with Mexico. The administration supports sustainable peace in Colombia, at the same time reaching new agreements to address the alarming growth in coca cultivation and production. The Caribbean 2020 plan sent to Congress last year looks to foster security and prosperity in a region important <coughs> to our interests. I have had the privilege of working on something I am passionate about for nearly two decades. This includes government service over four presidencies, 
I have seen the Western Hemisphere from three executive branch departments, from the private sector, from think tanks, and from extensive travel and study abroad. I began my career as an intelligence analyst serving for more than a decade, rising to manage a team with leadership responsibilities across a large office. On the National Security Council staff at the White House, I was director for Brazil and Southern Cone, director for Mexico and Canada, and did an interim period as director on the Andean region. Working in the private sector for five years was a lesson in how the private sector can be a US force multiplier. I also had the good fortune to work twice uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, first as an intern and two decades later as, in, as a senior uh, leader in Western Hem. Last June, I have, since last June, I've had the privilege to work closely with the Western Hemisphere Bureau while serving on the Secretary's policy planning staff. I have reunited with former colleagues and have been reminded how committed public servants work long hours to get the job done, to advance U.S. policy interests. I can, I can assure you that working with WHA is both humbling and deeply reassuring, because if confirmed, we will all be in this together. I could not ask for a better team. If confirmed, my job will be to ensure that they all succeed and that the United States succeeds as well. I'd like to close by thanking you for your continued commitment to getting it right in the Western Hemisphere. So many of you care deeply about this region, and I thank you for that. I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you. Mr. George. Chairman Rubio, Senator Mendez, distinguished members of the committee, and friends, Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. It is indeed an honor to appear as President Trump's nominee to the United States Ambassador to the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. I am humbled by the opportunity to serve our country again. If confirmed, I look forward to working with all stakeholders here and in Uruguay to further our interest and foster closer and mutually beneficial relations with the government and people of Uruguay. Although all could not be here, I am supported today by the most important people in my life. My wife of 43 years, Tricia, and our children, Kenneth, Patrick, Clement, Elizabeth, and their spouses. I will spare you, I won't list all the grandchildren, but we have them, including one on the way, and they're brilliant and beautiful. And I am blessed to enjoy their support. Our family has a long history in the service of our country. Without detailing our ancestors, endeavors in General Washington's army, I will say my grandparents met on the battlefields of France in World War I. She is an army nurse from Pennsylvania and he an army captain. Trisha's and my father both served in the Army Air Corps in World War II. I served as an officer in the 82nd Airborne Army Reserve. Trisha serves as on the Texas Committee of the National Museum of Women and the Arts here in DC and is an active cattle rancher. Kenneth, our eldest worked as a congressional intern in the Treasury Department in the Office of Economic Policy. Patrick is a major in the Marine Corps Reserves after serving two tours in Iraq. Clement spent four years in the Navy as a surface warfare officer with multiple deployments to the Persian Gulf and supported our humanitarian relief efforts in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. Elizabeth interned in the office of the Attorney General of Texas has been active in numerous political campaigns. She graduated from the University of Chicago Booth School where she was president of the Graduate School of Business. Obviously, I'm a proud papa. I believe my career, both in government service and in private sector, 
has prepared me for this opportunity. This nominating process is not new to me. As Senator Cornyn mentioned, I served as Assistant Secretary and Director General of the U.S. and Foreign Commercial Service during President Reagan's first term. I was responsible for our trade promotional staff and programs in 65 countries and 120 foreign cities. As you will also remember, during President Reagan's first term, the Caribbean Basin Initiative was passed. I was given additional implementation responsibilities under the leadership of USTR William Brock. And lastly, you will remember that there was a little fracas in Grenada, and we were tasked to lead the economic rebuilding of the island. It was our responsibility to restore work opportunities and sources of self-pride in the local population and restore economic stability. In the private sector, I could best be described as an entrepreneur. In the 70s, it was real estate development and building a publicly held conglomerate with furniture manufacturing, real estate development, and oil and gas exploration. In the 80s and 90s, it was the government and hospital management. With the help of outstanding staff, I put together and was chairman and CEO of the second largest ESOP in the United States at the time. Epic Healthcare Group had 15,000 employees in 25 states. After selling Epic to Health Trust HCA, I was fortunate enough to build one of the largest private ambulance companies in the state of Texas. I can honestly say that with, in every case, building up a high-functioning team was the key to our success, leadership clarity of vision, and allowing people to do their best is the fertile soil that enables an organization to flourish and accomplish the mission. If confirmed, this is what I hope you will find I bring to the office. Uruguay is an exciting country. It is one of, if not the most, progressive in Latin America, with the largest middle class, a strong history of democratic values, has a record of respecting religious freedoms. The Economist magazine says that Uruguay has the only complete democracy in Latin America, and it equals Canada's. And I might add, it has the largest commitment of soldiers to the UN peacekeeping operations of any country in Latin America, almost 1,000 soldiers. If confirmed as ambassador, I would work to strengthen cooperation with the government of Uruguay and international organizations to combat all forms of human trafficking. In closing, if confirmed, I look forward to working with all stakeholders to maintain a strong relationship with Uruguay, to advance our national interest, to support continued development of democratic institutions in the Oriental Republic of Uruguay, a relatively small country with an outsized influence in the region. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Um, let me start with Ms. Breyer. The, you referenced in your opening statement the administration change of policy towards Cuba. It's always a good point to remind people that our goal in Cuba ultimately is the restoration of a democracy. <coughs> we have an economic model that we would suggest. Uruguay is a good example of what works. But that's for the people of a free Cuba to determine. Our goal is democracy. And the threat to democracy in Cuba has been exacerbated by a government that's trying to transition its way into becoming a long-term permanent and accepted fixture uh, as a legitimate government. And, and one of the ways they're doing that is they have this military-owned holding company named GAESA, G-A-E-S-A, 
which is basically owns every profitable venture in Cuba. And so they're trying to create an economic dictatorship on top of the political one. And when the president made his change in policy towards Cuba, that's what he really focused on was hitting that economic activity. So that today an American traveler to Cuba uh, can frequent this, these so-called small businesses that are independently owned and the like. And in fact, they're in a privileged position. But theoretically, anyway, under the changes, you're not supposed to be going and, and spending money at these Gaesa-owned entities. As part of that agreement and the executive order, it was left to the State Department to define the companies and the entities that fell under the criteria of being sanctioned. And while I think the list is certainly better than what existed before the executive order, as you and I discussed when we met, the list is incomplete. There are a series of companies and ventures that remain uh, untouched and as a result have created the ability to circumvent much of the intent of what the president did. And, um, and it's unfortunate. We see this pattern repeat where presidents determine a direction and then the people who write the regs, the regulations and the, and the law figure out ways to potentially undermine it. And that needs to be fixed. And so my, my question is, uh, will you commit to working uh, with us uh, and the administration, including the National Security Council, to amend that list? Obviously, the decision would ultimately be up to the secretary. But to add to that list additional entities who, as of now, should be on the list but are escaping sanction. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for the question. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly on uh, on the direction and on the, the direction of the President's policy under the NSPM of June of last year. And uh, with regard to the specific, the restricted list, that's a collaborative effort between the Department and the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury. And I certainly will commit to reviewing it. My understanding is that it's a living document. Uh, the initial tranche that was announced last year uh, listed some 180 entities, I believe, and some 83 hotels. And we certainly can continue to review that as uh, new information comes to light. Thank you. Uh, obviously, the other point in terms of defending democracy in the region is Venezuela. And I, I do want to say, you know, people can say what they want about other parts of the world. I, I do think the administration's approach to Venezuela has, quite frankly, been textbook. Interesting that the region is leading. It is the Lima group that we're not even members of, we're supportive of, that are leading the efforts. And, and you see all at the OAS, and, and I give a sh it's a good opportunity to give a shout out to a friend and someone who I think did a phenomenal job at the latest OAS meeting, uh, Ambassador Carlos Trujillo. We saw additional countries uh, come on board and support us. Uh, so my question first to, to Mr. Mandela and Mr. George is, would you both commit to helping uh, as one of your top priorities, if confirmed, to talk to our ally governments in Trinidad and in uh, Uruguay and urge them uh, to join the rest of the democracies in the region in, in these efforts at the OAS to call out Venezuela and expel them from an organization of democracies, which is the official administration policy. Well, this is a very important point, Senator, and uh, I agree. I think it's incumbent upon uh, the ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, which is only 6.7 miles away from from uh, Venezuela uh, to do all in his power or her power to get uh, to be in, into Venezuela to discuss the, the various problems that exist and see if that we can bring some some stability to uh, uh, to what's going on over there because right now it's a very unstable situation and it really needs a lot of attention and uh, frankly I think that uh, I think that it's something that, that has to be done and should be done. Mr. George. 
Uh, Senator, it's an excellent point and clearly one of the most sensitive issues politically between the United States and the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Um, they, the Uruguayan government has been very helpful in the OAS on a number of occasions, and, but on the issue of uh, Venezuela, it has been a very tough, tough call. Uh, I know how sensitive it is within the government of, uh, of Uruguay, but I can assure you that it will be one of my principal focuses in regards to my discussions with the, the government, because it is an important objective of our country and for the peace and security of the region. Uh, Ms. Breyer, we, we talked about this when we met a few weeks ago, but we are now at a point where we are heavily sanctioning the, the regime and the individuals responsible for the suffering, but the migratory crisis of Venezuelans leaving, in addition to the humanitarian aspect of it, which is among the worst in the world now. I mean, we're seeing things coming out of Venezuela that we're used to seeing in other parts of the world. We've never seen anything like it in the Western Hemisphere, absent, you know, uh, natural disaster or something of that nature. is isn't just problematic for the people of Venezuela. It poses a real and growing challenge and even threat uh, to their neighbors in Colombia, Brazil, other countries in the region that are taking in these flows. So one of the things we've done is we provided humanitarian assistance and help to Colombia uh, in these camps, which is important. The problem is, the flip side of it is, the more aid is announced to these camps, the more people flow to these camps. Uh, is, it, is the administration, in your view, prepared to begin to develop uh, plans to try to figure out how we can deliver humanitarian aid within Venezuela, distributed by non-governmental organizations, uh, and perhaps despite the objection of the Venezuelan government, we, we cannot allow people to continue to suffer and die because what we are about to see there, in addition to the starvation and the death from, from diseases, is the spread of communicable diseases that have been wiped out. And suddenly now we could have uh, measles outbreaks in these countries in the region, which ultimately poses a threat to us as well. So what is, beyond the sanctions, what is, in your view, 2.0, what more can we do to help the people of Venezuela? Because uh, th that's an important aspect in all this. I, I agree with you, Senator, and share your concern. I think, uh, broadly speaking, the administration's strategy is uh, a broad and, and deep one, and I appreciate your, uh, your calling it a textbook, because I do think the administration has gotten it uh, right on Venezuela in what is, a, what is a tragic situation. I could not agree more. This is a man-made crisis. This is not a natural disaster. This is the result of one man and a small group of people uh, governing in a way that has taken a once prosperous nation and destroyed it. Uh, in terms of the, the administration strategy, we are looking at all aspects of it. I believe our aid uh, to neighboring uh, regions and international institutions is now in the area of 40 million. We're looking at other ways uh, to approach the problem. We certainly need to continue to call on the government of Venezuela to accept humanitarian aid. To this point, the government has refused to do so. And if, if they fail to do so, there are other avenues that we can pursue. And I don't want to get ahead of uh, decision making, but there is certainly a lot of thought being given to what we can do to try to get aid into Venezuela, as well as helping our regional allies in Colombia, Brazil, Guyana, and throughout the Caribbean and other places who are absorbing the impact of this. Ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <clears throat> over the weekend, the president took to Twitter to criticize Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau his closest advisors referred to Prime Minister Trudeau as, quote, a backstabber, said, quote, there is a special place in hell for him. This comes months after the presently open, uh, president openly boasted about lying to Prime Minister Trudeau. Such language is not only outrageous, but it runs completely contrary to the close partnership 
that has existed between the United States and Canada for decades on issues that span the globe from Ukraine to Syria to Afghanistan. So Ms. Breyer, do you share these views? Thank you, Senator. I think it's an important question. Uh, the relationship with Mexico and Canada have been the focus of the bulk of my 20-year career in Western Hemisphere affairs. I am acutely aware of the importance of these relationships and how deep and institutional they are across the board. Uh, I think uh, what, it, what we're witnessing right now is a disagreement over trade. And in the 20 plus years I've been doing this, I can't think of a time where we haven't had a disagreement on trade, either with Canada or with Mexico. So I think these are the types of things that we've been able to overcome in the past and that there's a deep institutionality in these relationships that will allow us to surmount the areas where we don't agree and continue working on the areas But we can disagree we without being disagreeable. Am I going to have you, you want me to vote on you as the Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere, and you can't tell me that this language is not acceptable? Do I, would I ever expect you to use that language? Because if not, you're never going to get to this committee. Senator, if, I, if, if confirmed for this position, my job would be to be a top diplomat on this file. I understand very well the need to adhere to proper diplomatic forum and will choose my words carefully. Do you believe such comments help advance the U.S. national interest in this hemisphere? I think, I think Senator, what, uh, what the administration is pointing out is that there are some, uh, there are some things in trade that have not uh, been fair and reciprocal and that the administration is focused on trying to write. Is Mexico the second largest export market for goods and services in the, uh, in the world? Second yes, largest? Yes, sir. It is. Let me ask you something. Do you believe Canadian steel and aluminum constitute a threat to U.S. national security? Uh, I believe the, the finding of the 232 panel suggests that the overcapacity globally is the threat to national security, not necessarily Canadian steel and aluminum specifically. Let me ask you this. With re you have extensive experience, which I admire, uh, working on issues related to Mexico. And I know you fully understand how important this relationship is. But we cannot expect to secure our border, address undocumented immigration, address challenges related to narcotics trafficking, which are contributing to the heroin and fentanyl epidemic that is plaguing our country. Now, the problem is, is that the administration's comments continue to raise the political cost for any Mexican authority that wants to cooperate with us, and we need their cooperation. But everybody has a, has a domestic constituency, and if you make it impossible for uh, a government official, including the highest elements of the Mexican government, to work with the American government because at, at the end of the day there is a huge domestic cost, it's not going to happen. So as our person who would be our principal diplomat for the Americas, do you intend to formulate a strategy uh, to make Mexico pay for a border wall between our countries? Senator, I, I could not agree with you more. This is one of the most fundamentally important relationships to the United States. And despite the ongoing disagreements at the political level, as I mentioned, I think that the relationships are making progress behind the scenes in an institutional way. And I think that that's very important. We live next door to each other. We are, we are in this together, and I think everyone uh, realizes that. Do you intend to formulate a strategy, was my question. I intend to work very closely, if confirmed, with the government of Mexico on securing the border and doing all of the things we can do cooperatively with Mexico to address threats before they get there. Do you believe Mexican steel and aluminum constitute a threat to the national security of the United States? 
I believe the 232 report, it concluded that global oversupply is the threat, Senator, not specifically Mexican. Do you believe the United States can address a border security migration and drug trafficking without a productive partnership with Mexican authorities? Uh, I, I do not. I think a productive relationship is necessary. Let me uh, ask you another important different set of questions. Over the last seven months, the Department of Homeland Security, acting in consultation with the Department of State, has terminated temporary protective status for Haitians, Salvadorians, and Honduran nationals. This status, as you know, was designed to protect individuals who are unable to return to the dire conditions in their homeland. To this point, I am extremely concerned that when then-Secretary Tillerson decided to recommend the termination of TPS for Haitians, Salvadorians, and Hondurans, he deliberately disregarded the advice of our embassies on the ground, of the foreign policy officials who were tasked with ascertaining the conditions on the ground. So I'd like to ask you, at the time the State Department made its decisions to not recommend an extension of TPS for Honduras, El Salvador, and Haiti, you were working as a senior advisor covering Western Hemisphere affairs for the Office of Policy Planning for the Secretary of State. What role did you play in this decision-making process? Thank you for the question, Senator. The, the Office of Policy Planning is, is part of the Secretary's staff and it tends to be a strategy office. What we do principally is oversee uh, documents that are, that are going to the Secretary and also try to assist on developing strategies for example, uh, on that country, countries and, and challenges like Venezuela. So in this particular case, I was involved in the sense that I, I was aware the debate was going on and that the discussions were happening, but I was not uh, directly involved in the day-to-day. -day. So as the senior advisor covering the Western Hemisphere on policy planning uh, in an office of 20 individuals at most, you were unaware and had no impact on the decision? Senator, I didn't say I was unaware. Uh, I, I said I was involved in, in overseeing and, and broadly was aware that... So when you say you were involved in overseeing, give me a sense of what you were doing as it relates to this issue. I would, when uh, documents would come forward, I would review them and, and, uh, and sign off on them or, or not as they went to the I'm Secretary sorry, come, for his I'm sorry, come forward from where? From the bureaus. There are multiple, multiple bureaus in the department. And those documents we now know basically all said that uh, TPS should be continued in the national interest of the United States. It's not not a fair statement. Uh, I, I, I did not see uh, I did not see it evolve the way you're describing. I think the the embassy came. We have we have, cop that. we have copies of the documents. Are you telling me those documents did not say that it's not in the national interest of the United States to extend uh, to uh, uh, not extend to end TPS? Senator, I think that what I saw was a was a vigorous debate that went on in the building. And another uh, point I would like to make is that. Uh, I think there's a tendency to, to separate between uh, political and career and, and the sense that, that the, the views of career folks were not, uh, were not heard. And I, don't, I didn't see it that way at all. And, and if confirmed, I think uh, I would like to foster an environment where all views are heard regardless of whether you're career or political. I witnessed a vigorous debate on this, and I don't think that it's entirely accurate to characterize it as overriding the views Well, I guess you and I are going to have to go over the documents because a plain reading of the documents make it very clear that those who are on the ground in our embassies, and this concerns me certainly for these three countries, but what's going to happen moving forward? If you put people who you want to uh, run our embassies abroad, and they, whether they be political appointees or career individuals and those who work with them, 
and they give you the advice that this is not in the national interest of the United States and you reject their advice because of other political considerations, I think that's a bad process. So we're, we're, we're going to have to go over the documents because the documents are pretty clear. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I have questions for the other nominees, but in deference to my colleagues, I'll wait. I just want to clarify, because that's an interest of mine as well, the, the whole TPS issue. And if I hear you correctly, what you're describing is an internal process in which the State Department opined on the national security elements for, for purposes of the diplomatic court. What's the impact it's going to have in Honduras and Haiti and the like? But then there were other uh, parts of this debate outside of the State Department uh, that we're viewing it through the migratory or DHS, and ultimately the policy was made because of all these inter interconnected uh, silos, so to speak. That's correct. Is that how you're describing the yeah, process? Yeah, that's correct, Senator. Ultimately, the decision-making authority on this issue rests with the Department of Homeland Security. Okay, and so the State Department just informed them on that and that's the doc that, so that, that's the process. Uh, under, right. Correct. The State Department informed as to whether the underlying conditions that justified the original designation continue to exist. Right. And, and that issue, by the way, probably deserves a broader, uh, just the State Department portion of it deserves a broader flushing out in terms of the, the rationale, because I, I too believe that it would have a very significant impact on Honduras and Haiti and these countries that we've invested in. So, Senator Carter. I want to follow up on this because I'm confused now. Senator Menendez uh, has accurately portrayed the information that we have reviewed that showed that the missions and country recommended the continuation of TPS. The vigorous debate you're referring to, did that happen within the State Department or did that happen within Homeland Security? Uh, it, to my knowledge, it happened within the State Department, sir. So you're saying that the State Department itself recommended the termination of TPS? I'm saying, Senator, there was not a unified view within the department on this, and then the Secretary made a decision. The Secretary of State. I, and the Secretary of State supported the termination of the yes. TPS status? Yes, sir. I'm not sure we were aware of that. I think that's different than uh, at least I, I, I thought the decision was made by Homeland Security and that, with, uh, and that the recommendation from the State Department was different. So you're the, saying, the recommendation from the State Department assesses whether the original conditions exist and then so you the recommendations. So you State Department overruled the views of the mission. Now, the last time we saw something like this happen was on, uh, on the TIP report. And this committee, out, rightly so, got outraged. The politics was overruling something that we feel pretty strongly about. State Department's assessment deals with the circumstances in the countries of Central America or Haiti that would allow these individuals to return. Is it, are they prepared to take them back? Are the circumstances better? Is it in our, in our interest, et cetera? And what you're telling me now that there was a rigorous debate in State Department that overruled those on the ground that had talked to the host countries that strongly supported the continuation of TPS. That's different than I thought, but that's what you're telling me happened. Senator, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest is that the, the inputs on the ground are an input into a broader process where they come into the department, into multiple bureaus, who deliberate and then make a recommendation to the Secretary of State, who then makes a recommendation to the Secretary of Homeland Security based on whether the original conditions that justified the TPS designation continue to exist. And this, the ultimate recommendation from the State Department was to terminate the TPS. That's my understanding, sir, yes. 
Uh, let me uh, go move on to other subjects first. Let me thank you all for your willingness to, to serve and thank your families. Uh, I, I want to ask the general question first. I hope that you can recognize that we're going to follow up on this, and that is your commitment to advance American values and human rights uh, in the hemisphere or two countries in which you've been nominated to represent the United States. We expect that you will inform us as to the progress that you're making on human rights, something I asked of all of our nominees, and that it will be a top priority of yours in the countries. There is no country in our hemisphere that couldn't improve on human rights, uh, and particularly with the Assistant Secretary. Uh, to me, it's critically important that this be spotlighted in your work. Um, do we have your commitment that you will uh, be uh, working with us and will share information and respond to requests that we have uh, in regards to human rights issues? I guess I'll go first. Yes, sir. And I will say that, if I may, that Uruguay is like pushing on an open door in this regard, as you're probably well aware. They were the president of the Human Rights Council in the UN. They co-founded the Equal Rights Coalition. They're a very progressive country in regards to LGBTI rights. So it will be an issue that will be taken up and supported vigorously in my country if, if confirmed to the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Yes, I would agree with uh, George. I, I believe that it's, a, uh, it's a, uh, an, a very, very important issue, if not the most important issue. Human rights, uh, when it comes to Trinidad and Tobago, um, could possibly be some very, some very difficult uh, situations going on there regarding human trafficking, regarding drugs, regarding so much of this. And, and I think that it's going to be the responsibility of the ambassador that goes there, if I'm confirmed, uh, to, uh, to delve into these problems, use the agencies in which I, uh, if confirmed, would have the, uh, would have the ability to, to uh, speak with to aid uh, the local Trinidadian government in terms of, uh, of handling these problems. And speaking to the two countries that, are, that we have specific nominees for, uh, it's important that our mission be an open door for those that want to hear an advocate for human rights. Sometimes the host country is not particularly pleased that we put a spotlight on problems in their own country. I take it you're both prepared to carry on the tradition of our missions to be there on behalf of human rights advocates? Without question, Senator. Yes, sir, without question. Ms. Breyer, I, you and I have had a chance to talk about this before, so I, I want to, we talked about the, uh, the, the concern in Paraguay of, uh, of a Marylander who in 2015, Alex Valamera, who was brutally raped and murdered in Paraguay. It was a long time before they acknowledged the circumstances, and there was, uh, there still has been um, a delay in, in dealing with this. We've asked the FBI to, to help. Uh, we've had some cooperation, but not enough. Will you make this a, a personal um, priority of yours to resolve uh, this particular open case against an American? Yes, Senator. Appreciate that. And then lastly, um, as it relates to OAS, we had a conversation uh, also on OAS as to how we can strengthen that. Uh, there's interest in this committee to strengthen the parliamentary dimension within OAS. It, it's located kind of conveniently for us to participate, being located here in Washington, 
Uh, will you uh, agree to work with our committee as to how we can strengthen the OIS to be more effective in dealing with the challenges we have in our own hemisphere? Yes, Senator, I continue to believe the OAS is the premier institution in our hemisphere, and we should do everything possible to strengthen it. Thank you. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank Senator Risch also for letting me jump the line. I appreciate that. Um, to <laughs> there, you, I owe you one. Uh, to, to, uh, to all of you, I applaud you for your nominations and for your willingness to serve. Um, Ms. Breyer, I'm going to start with you, and I may only ask you questions just because of my passion about the billet that you're inheriting. Um, Senator Menendez, questions to you about the, the statements about Canada put you in a hard position, and so I'm not really even going to ask you a question about it. You, you are a diplomat with a great deal of experience, and you understand this region very well, and I think you know what diplomatic protocols are and what they aren't. And so... Has there been trade issues with Canada in the past? Absolutely, and there, and there always will be. But they're one of our biggest trade partners, and when the right hand of a president says that um, the Prime Minister of Canada, you know, deserves a place in hell, that's just completely outside the range of reason. It's, it's something that should be on a South Park episode. It's not something that is presidential behavior. Um, and so when we asked you to comment on it, I mean, the president's nominated you, so that puts you in a really hard position, but I guess the reason we ask a question like that is I met with you in the office. You know this area very well. I'm glad to have so many of your experience in it, but just, just don't trade a lifetime reputation of service to the country and understanding of the region. Just, you know, I, I want good people to take these jobs even under a difficult circumstance, but you're going to face a lot of opportunities should you be confirmed in a lot of moments where I think there's going to be a very <laughs> difficult choice, and it's going to be the integrity that you've built up over decades doing this work um, and moments where you can just kind of squander it. I mean, Canada and Mexico are two of our biggest trading partners nationally, and Virginia certainly. And as the senator said, that I've, I've visited Canadian troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've seen Canadians at Langstall Hospital in Germany who've been injured side by side with the U.S. And while trade disputes with Canada are nothing new, language like that is unprecedented. I'm understanding the Canadian Parliament today is doing a resolution condemning the President of the United States. That's, that's, not, nor that's not the norm. And with as many equities as we have on the table with these nations, so many issues from border to trade to to hemispheric, other hemisphere activities to what we do in the security space. I mean, anybody who is voting for you is voting for you based on their judgment, not about your past, but about your future. And, and just please make the right choice when those moments come. I want to ask you, the last sen thing that Senator Cardin asked you was about the OAS, and, and I want you to tell me, you said preeminent institution there, but talk to me a little bit about what you think of the OAS right now. I think it's had some ups and downs. I think it's, there's been times it's been less effective, more effective, but give me your sense of it right now. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for the, for the comments. Um, I do think the OAS is, is and should be the central institution. It's a very unique hemisphere, as, as you well know. We're the only hemisphere bounded by democracy and by a choice to commit to democratic governance through the Inter-American Democratic Charter. So I think that we need to continue to focus on building 
out the capacity institutionality of the OAS and also reinforcing its ability to enforce its existing charters and conventions. Those include the conventions on corruption, which were highlighted in Lima recently, as well as the Inter-American Democratic Charter. So I think we should, we should absolutely focus on everything we can do. We have an excellent ambassador there, and uh, I think moving forward it will be a high priority to reinforce the institutionality and including its role in, in Honduras uh, on anti-corruption uh, I think where I think it is playing a very important role, and we need to ensure we can strengthen it in that as well. I want to use the Honduras example as just kind of an example of your thinking about the OAS as an institution or the department or administration's thinking. So part of wanting the OAS to be stronger is if they take a position of strength trying to support that position. When the Honduran elections were held in November, the OAS concluded in mid-December based on their review that the elections were fundamentally unfair and that there should be a re-election, that there should be another election. And they rendered that opinion. And, and this was not a, a matter of casual interest to me, having lived in Honduras. And I would, I would certainly never suggest that another nation needed to do new elections lightly, especially a country like this, where I know the president. But when the OAS, who I do believe is doing better, and I do believe we're trying to elevate their influence in the region reached this conclusion. I don't think they reached it lightly. Talk about why the U.S., what the thinking process was, why this administration, despite the OAS's decision, decided to say, no, the election should not be rerun and we should just move forward. What was the process behind that? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I, think, I think the situation was we, we ended up uh, with a very close election in Honduras. The OAS report, I think, uh, was very critical of, of some of the, the underpinnings of how the election uh, was carried out, but the report itself did not call for a new election. The report simply pointed out that there were some irregularities and issues of, of concern. We also had input from the European Union, which had a delegation there as well, observing the election. Uh, when taking uh, all of that into consideration, it's my understanding that the policy was that there wasn't anything that, uh, that convinced the policymakers at the time that the outcome of the election had been changed, even though the United States made a strong statement acknowledging the irregularities in the work of both the OAS and the EU missions, that there was not sufficient information to suggest that the outcome would have been changed. So uh, the administration did, in fact, uh, support Honduran institutions that had concluded after much review uh, and uh, uh, reconsideration and recount of a number of the, of the actas. That, uh, that the election should stand. I may want to follow up with you on this because I'm just looking at a Reuters report from December with the title OAS says Honduran presidential election should be redone. I agree with you, they called out irregularities in the election, but I thought they reached some conclusion or suggested that the elections be redone. Last thing I'll just say is um, I share the concerns my colleagues have raised about the TPS situation. And again, I'll use Honduras as, as an example, but we could talk about others. I, um, I had a visit, which is an annual visit in my office from the Association of General Contractors. Now, they usually come to me and they talk to me about construction issues, tax, regulation. This year they came in and they brought El Salvadoran and Honduran workers with their construction firms. And they talked about how devastating it would be to their businesses in, the, in this country uh, if these Salvadoran and Hondurans were, be, were to be pushed back to Honduras and El Salvador. I spoke with the president of Honduras about this last week, and he had the same reaction that it would be very, very difficult. And he predicted, which I think what we know to be true, some will come back and the reintegration will be very difficult, and some will choose not to come back. And instead of living legally paying taxes, doing the things that we want them to do, they'll move into the shadows of the U.S. economy. I, 
I just cannot fathom why the administration concluded, especially when I have business interests in my office saying, please maintain TPS. I can't fathom why the administration concluded that these programs should be terminated, but I look forward to, and as Senator Menendez and Cardin were talking about, going through the, the dialogue itself, because I also was of the impression that the U.S. Embassy in, in Honduras, in Tegucigalpa, strongly recommended that TPS be extended. I may have follow-up questions about that uh, in writing. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Barr. Just before I turn to uh, Senator Riss, just to touch a point that I thought you raised earlier when I first questioned about the um, sort of the statements about Canada and so forth, which we get are you know unprecedented. We've not we're not accustomed to seeing that sort of thing, but, but, but yet you've testified, and I believe all of us are aware of, there are deep institutional ties between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, particularly Canada. This morning, everybody showed up at work at NORAD on the defense side. Everybody, you view your role and those like you in the State Department as keeping those institutional ties strong, irrespective of what might be happening on a day-to-day -day level in the political realm, and I thought that's what you had said earlier. I just wanted to that's correct, Senator. Yes. Okay, Senator Rich. Thank you. Thank, thank uh, to all three of you. Thanks for willing to undertake uh, these difficult jobs in the world we live in today, um, Mr. Mondello. I have a specific question for you. Senator Rubio and I sit on the uh, Intelligence Committee, and high on our radar screen over a number of years has been ISIS uh, and ISIS fighters and where they come from and uh, and how they're trained and that sort of thing. Um, the uh, it is, uh, and this president has been very successful in tamping ISIS down, which is a good thing, and they're not on, in the headlines as much as they were, but they're still there. We're all convinced that they're going to rear their ugly head again somewhere uh, under a different banner or what have you. But the thing that was surprising, I think, to a lot of us is that Trinidad and Tobago produce more ISIS fighters per capita than any other country in the, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that and what thoughts you might have about working with the governments of those two countries to, uh, uh, to fight extremism. Uh, well, Senator, this is a very important problem that, uh, that exists in, uh, in Trinidad and Tobago. You're right, there was 135, I believe, individuals that went to uh, join ISIS, um, which is the highest per capita uh, amount in any country that have come from any country. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a problem that needs to be worked on. We, we have to, if confirmed, I would help the Trinidadian government as much as I could together with the members of the uh, agencies that are in my, uh, would be in my embassy to, uh, uh, to see if the certain things could be alleviated. There's, there's, there's poverty there. There's, there's socioeconomic problems in spite of the fact that they have a very high uh, GDP. Uh, in uh, in the uh, in Trinidad and Tobago, yet we uh, we have to have some messaging going on there to uh, let people uh, understand, um, you know, what we believe in, what we are, and uh, try to help these people to uh, um, succeed and become employed. And not let uh, not let these people be so susceptible to uh, to joining ISIS and getting involved in that nefarious behavior. Well, I appreciate that, and I hope you'll carry the message to those governments that uh, this is a matter that's on our radar screen, and and we are very concerned about it, particularly coming from our own hemisphere, 
uh, and putting people on the, on the ground uh, in other parts of the world to fight American interests there. So thank you very much, and thank you again for your willingness to serve. Thank, thank you, you sir. Senator. Thank you, Senator. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to each of you on being nominated, and thank you for your willingness to take on these difficult positions at this time. Ms. Breyer, on May 7th, Attorney General Sessions announced that all adults who arrive at our border, southern border, will be prosecuted for illegal entry, even if they attempt to seek asylum. Um, this has resulted in an unprecedented policy of parents being separated from their children. We heard over the weekend news reports that in the month of May alone, 415 children were taken away at the McAllen, Texas um, border crossing alone. Can you tell me what the view is in the Latin American countries of this policy and whether it's having any impact on either those people trying to come to this country to seek asylum or um, on our border security? Thank you, Senator. Thank you for the question. Uh, I think, uh, as you as you point out, uh, the State Department's uh, a piece of this question is the is the foreign policy one, and it relates to our ongoing program started under the past administration, uh, the strategy for Central America, which has uh, benefited from the bipartisan support of many members of this committee. And if confirmed, it would be my responsibility to ensure that we are continuing to carry out that policy, which is to continue to try to change the underlying circumstances in the countries themselves so that families would never make the decision that we're seeing them make now to traverse Mexico and to arrive uh, at, the, at the U.S. border. Uh, I have not yet had the opportunity to speak with, directly with the governments about, uh, about their reaction to uh, the Attorney General's announcement. I'd have to, I'd have to get back to you on that from, from my uh, colleagues in the department. Um, I would ask you to get back to this committee with a response on that. I, I have to say that I think the policy is wrong. It's wrong-headed. And the idea that we are going to separate children um, from their families is just un-American, to be frank and something that we should not allow. And, and I would hope that we as a committee would speak up against that and let the administration know very clearly where we stand. So um, Mr. Chairman and Senator um, Menendez, I hope that you will take that under advisement. Um, if you're confirmed as Assistant Secretary, Ms. Breyer, how will you work with SOUTHCOM uh, to combat the drug trade that is coming through um, the region and support drug interdiction efforts. This is a huge issue for us in New Hampshire and certainly for many states across the country. Thank you, Senator. It's an important question. Uh, I think one of the things I've witnessed in, in my career, particularly in my experience at the White House uh, in 2005-2006, is the importance of the coordination among the interagency and, and making sure that we're all synced up on our priorities uh, in terms of addressing the, the challenges that we have. Uh, I'm proud to say that this administration, I think, has taken very seriously the opioid uh, issue, both on the demand side and on the supply side. And clearly, Southcom is the leading tip of the spear uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the supply side, working with regional governments in trying to develop strategies on maritime interdiction, uh, eradication, and all of the various aspects of combating uh, the, the supply side of this problem. So I think it's a very important priority, and I certainly will commit to doing that if confirmed. Thank you very much. Um, 
can you describe what the administration's policy is on addressing the empowerment of women and um, the challenges that women, particularly in Latin America, face? Sure, thank you, Senator. Uh, I think one of the things um, that uh, unfortunately I didn't, didn't think got very much coverage uh, during the Lima Summit was that we announced a major initiative uh, through OPEC on women's empowerment in the Western Hemisphere. And I certainly think it's a priority for this administration. The president's national security strategy references empowering women uh, as part of its, uh, as part of the, the key strategic goals of the administration. So I certainly uh, think that that will be a priority and will commit also to working uh, on that. The, the OPEC uh, announcement was about empowering microenterprise and providing seed capital for women entrepreneurs. And I think it's a really interesting initiative and one that we can do a lot with in the Western Hemisphere. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because um, the fact is the administration tried to abolish the Office of Global Women's Issues. Um, it is not yet filled, and um, we have eliminated our funding for UNFPA, which is so important for women um, in Latin America and around the world in terms of access to family planning. So I would hope that we would recognize the importance of women both in their contributions to their families and their communities and their countries. Because what we've seen is that when women have a more equal voice or an equal voice, that that makes a huge difference in how their countries and their communities do. Um, Mr. Mondello and Mr. George, would you both commit that if confirmed that you will work to ensure that women in Trinidad and Tobago and in Uruguay are um, a focus of what your work is as ambassador? Absolutely, Senator. That's something really uh, would, would be uh, top priority. Mr. George? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma I can assure you that. And we will have a strong outreach in all our uh, activities regarding LBGTI and women's issues, et cetera, in the, in the community. Thank you very much. And let me just say, I, I want to associate my remarks with those that have already been presented by members of this committee with respect to Canada. Canada is New Hampshire's in particular, um, but also Mexico. They are both New Hampshire's among our largest trading partners. Canada is our largest trading partner. About a third of people in the Granite State are direct descendants from um, Canadians who came down from Quebec. and. They still, many of them still have relatives in Canada, and the fact that we would have this kind of discussion about the head of the Prime Minister of Canada where such disparaging remarks are used, I think is not in America's interest. And I think it's important, as Senator Kane said, that we call out those kinds of comments. You know, one of the things that's wrong with our politics today is the fact that People treat that as being normal. We need to restore civil discourse and respect for different opinions, and we don't do it by calling out names. Um, as somebody who's been part of the State Department and the diplomatic service for many years, Ms. Breyer, you understand that, and I certainly hope that both of you as candidates to be um, ambassadors understand that as well. It is not acceptable behavior, and it's incumbent on all of us Democrat and Republican to call it out when we see it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> we had here for the finish line, I wanted to um, 
raise a couple topics. Uh, Ms. Breyer, going back to you for a moment. Uh, and uh, let's talk about Nicaragua for a moment. You've, you've followed closely uh, events as they've unfolded there. It's my view, and I think the view of many, that that government has lost legitimacy and, frankly, its ability to continue to govern under the conditions. And there's been talks with the Catholic Church. Now I hear there that might, the uh, government might want to uh, invite in uh, the UN to figure out a way to moderate a way forward. They obviously are not big fans of the OAS. But um, so that's why they would want to do that. It's my view that they've lost legitimacy and uh, they're going to struggle to ever be able to govern again. And that probably the only path forward for them is some sort of earlier election than is currently called for, obviously internationally supervised and the like. What they don't have, in my view, is the benefit of time to run the clock on this. They, number one, I, I do think that at some point the administration, uh, in fact, I know, is going to look very closely at using the Global Magnitsky Act and other options to go after individuals who have been violating human rights and, and are guilty of corruption. Uh, here in Congress, there's a law called the NECA Act, which unfortunately has run into uh, some procedural hurdles, but which I believe uh, when voted on would, would pass overwhelmingly. And then there's an additional factor, which I have strong reason to believe that within the next 60 days or so, Nicaragua is going to face a real uh, currency challenge. Their currency reserves are dwindling rapidly, so they're going to have a banking and or currency crisis here probably in the next month and a half to two. So all these things are, are confluence of events. Could you, uh, and, and I think it, we also, it's important for us to explain to the American people why we should care. Obviously, we've already talked about defending democracy in the hemisphere, and our, it's why it's in our national interest to do so. Nicaragua also happens to be, perhaps after Cuba, the, the nation where Russia has the, the most influence in terms of talking about potential visit rights or even basing rights in the hemisphere and the like. But the third, which is not often talked about, is the role that Nicaragua plays in terms of the routes that bring drugs, this increased production of cocaine, uh, through Central America. And... Uh, for a lot of different reasons, primarily because they kill drug dealers, they have avoided Nicaragua. Uh, if there is instability there of any sort, if it, it compromises uh, because of an economic crisis, uh, the ability to continue to en enforce those mechanisms, that's an additional transit point that would now open up, thereby making it even easier to bring drugs into the United States. How do you view, first of all, kind of where we are today in our policies, and could you describe sort of what you think the appropriate role for the U.S. is in the regards to Nicaragua in the months to come. Thank you, Senator. This is a, a really important issue that uh, you know is evolving and breaking. You know, as we as we sit here, uh, I want to go back to something that uh, both you and uh, the ranking member mentioned in your opening statements, which is, by and large, you know, we have a, we have a tremendous uh, opportunity in the Western Hemisphere, and we've seen a, a, an incredible amount of positive change over over recent years. There are glaring exceptions to that, and the glaring exceptions are the countries that follow this old model, the, the Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua principally, where I think the, the populations in those countries have said enough that this model doesn't work and, and it is time for a change. And certainly we've seen that recently with Nicaraguans of all stripes in the streets. We've seen students, we've seen business organizations, we've seen the church, and I think people have been struck by uh, the diversity <coughs> of the number of people protesting and, and their backgrounds who have told the Ortega government that enough and it is time uh, to make a change. In terms of the U.S. role, clearly um, we're following it very closely. It is a priority. We announced very recently that we are uh, withdrawing visas from some top regime uh, 
uh, officials for their participation in the suppression of the protests. GLOMAG, as you mentioned, is something that has already been used in Nicaragua and we, we could use again and we'll be looking at, I think, uh, all of the possible tools for addressing this crisis at the same time as pressing the government of Nicaragua to come to the table and resume uh, dialogue under the auspices of the church and the other players to move this toward quick resolution. I agree with your characterization that there is not a tremendous amount of time and that we're looking at a situation where the government needs to probably move very quickly uh, to schedule uh, elections and, and move the process forward. And again, what I'm about to say is my opinion. I'm not representing that to be the opinion of anybody else or the official opinion of the administration. And I'm not asking you to opine on it. You're, you're still not confirmed. But I, I still think that contrary to Venezuela, there, there is still time for Ortega and for his wife, the vice president, to figure out a way to sort of trans call a new real election and kind of transition to some form of, of um, retirement. I had an opportunity last week to meet with a numerous uh, students from Nicaragua. None of them are yet calling for them to be put in jail or them to be even forcibly exiled. Uh, I, I do think there comes a point where you cross a line and, and then that sort of opportunity is no longer available. And so I hope it's an opportunity they'll take because I think the, the reverse, if something like that does not happen, is there is a real potential for significant bloodshed we have seen both former Sandinistas and Contras, who, Sandinistas who oppose Ortega and, and Contras who always did, who have been threatening to take up arms to rebel against the government. So I, I do believe that there is the potential, sadly, for a much more violent uh, open confrontation that reminiscent of what we may have seen in some portions of the 80s. And there's a chance to still avoid it. And I, and I hope they're hearing that and that there is a chance to, to do that. I wanted to ask one more question, and I actually wanted to ask you, Mr. George, for your input, although it takes you outside of Uruguay, it takes you into sort of some of your business experience. There's reports yesterday, um, let me just say that there are no U.S. oil sanctions on Venezuela. It's been widely speculated. The only people sanctioning the Venezuelan oil industry is the Maduro regime because their production has declined, I mean, just collapsed. And a consequence of that, and they use the oil, by the way, to buy their influence. When people ask themselves, why are some of these countries out there still voting with them at the OAS? Not really uh, uh, Uruguay for these purposes, but others. It's because of oil through, through the agreements that they had made in Petrocarib and the like. But they announced in the last couple of days, it's been brought to light that about half the Caribbean countries are being cut off because they're being cut off of access to oil because Venezuela can no longer produce it. One of them is not Cuba, by the way. They continue to find ways to deliver. Venezuela can still finds ways to deliver humanitarian aid to Cuba after recent events there, but can't deliver humanitarian aid to its own people and can't produce oil for its other customers, but sure makes, goes, really reaches to make sure they can continue to provide oil to Cuba, so that's an interesting dynamic. Suffice it to say, Antigua and Barbados, Belize, Dominica, El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, so add to the currency crisis, they're gonna lose access to oil. St. Vincent, St. Kitts, all are going to lose access uh, to uh, Petrocarib oil here very soon because Venezuela can't produce it. My question to you, Ms. Breyer, is, is there an opportunity there for the United States now to engage with our private sector, not just to make up sort of the loss of energy which these countries need, but ensure that no other potential geopolitical competitor could step in the void and try to fill it at our expense because uh, we, there seems there be an opportunity for us to leverage our U.S. capacity to meet that need um, and also has geopolitical benefits. And to you, Mr. George, wh what is the opportunity? Just going off your background and in investment in, in oil and gas and the like, 
what are the opportunities there for American Gulf refineries to, to play a role in stepping up and potentially helping to fill that void? It's an unfair question. It's outside the realm of Uruguay, but you're here. I, I read your bio, and so it sounds like something you might be able to give us some opinions on, but certainly you, Ms. Breyer, it's a, I think it's a key opportunity. Thank you, Senator. I, I agree with your with your characterization that, that the Venezuelan oil sector is uh, is uh, collapsing all on its own, absent uh, sanctions from the United States. Uh, I think uh, to to get to the to the where we can go in the future in terms of helping Caribbean nations that may be coming off uh, Venezuelan subsidized oil, this is something that the administration has been looking at uh, in cooperation with Canada and Mexico and our partners in the Caribbean to see exactly what what you suggest, what opportunities there may be. Uh, to backfill on supplies. We also have uh, vigorous programs in the Caribbean focused on energy security, looking at alternative forms of energy and ways that the United States, through our development finance and other tools, can assist the Caribbean uh, in getting off of oil entirely and looking at other forms of, uh, of energy supply. As you well know, the electricity costs in the Caribbean remain very high, so I think we have a challenge there, even absent uh, the, the Petro-Caribe situation. Senator, that's a, obviously you're right. It's not in my wheelhouse for the, today's discussion, but the oil industry is obviously something I've been involved in all my life. My dad was a geologist back starting in 1945 in West Texas. <clears throat> Good time to get into that business. It, <laughs> he was one of those, you know, uh, returnees from World War II, and the the uh, had a scholarship due to the to the, you know, the soldiers and everything. So it, it we wound up in Midland. Um, the issue right now is, yes, we have, we have revolutionized exploration in, in the world, starting in, in Texas, in the Barnett Shale with the hydraulic fr fracking. I'm not wanting, I don't, you don't want me to get into a detailed discussion about what's going on, but I can say the opportunity clearly exists. Now, the Gulf Coast, as you all are obviously very familiar with, those refineries positioned themselves to take heavy crude from the Orinoco Basin in Venezuela, a number of them, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but a significant number. As the crude falls off, as the, the implosion of the uh, Venezuelan capacity to export, to produce, et cetera, we're having to replace, because you just can't flip a switch and make a refinery change its feedstock. Now, the other problem in regards to responding to your question, because it seems very obvious that you're exactly right, the, but there are some logistics problems, and not to get into the real details, but we have a significant pipeline constraint. There's going to be no basin in the United States any bigger than the Permian Basin out in West Texas. The Delaware, all those basins that are make part of what we call generically the Permian Basin of West Texas. It is, it is multi-stacked, it is going to be prolific, it's going to be one of the largest fields in the, in the entire world. The problem is you've got to get it to the market. You've got to get it to the refinery. We have now a major constraint. The pipelines are full. So when you have the current market for the product sales and you have the supply and the pipelines that connect the two, and you can't just put it on a truck. I mean, you can physically put oil on a truck. You cannot do that with natural gas. And you cannot put it necessarily on a rail. You can put it on there, but there's a capacity issue. So the ability to supply that need quickly 
is an issue that is different from is it strategically important to the United States that we do it eventually? And as you well remember, we had a major impediment to exporting U.S. energy for a long time in this country. So the ability to sell into the Caribbean has been constrained by other measures. So your point is, is well taken. I know the oil industry looks forward to being able to, to create export markets for their product. Nothing is easier than doing it close to home in the Caribbean. Uh, I think it is a tremendous opportunity. I have been talking about that concept in other arenas, natural gas into Europe, et cetera. Uh, for a long time as a strategic advantage that the United States needs to take advantage of, and we are currently not positioned well to do it. Thank you. Thank you, Member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start uh, this second round on a positive note. Uh, I'm thrilled to uh, announce to the committee that the United bid from the United States, Canada, and Mexico to host the 2026 World Cup has uh, achieved success. So we are doing something together hemispherically. Maybe that will be the beginning of something new. And Mr. Chairman, we'll invite you. The final will be at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. So um, you know, it'll, it'll be a great moment. I heard it was in Montreal, but that's... Uh, it's <laughs> MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. So uh, anyhow. Um, Mr. Mondello, uh, having uh, Congressman King here is an asset. It would even be a bigger asset if you were being nominated to Ireland. But, uh, but it's, still right, an, Senator. it's still an asset. Uh, Congressman King and I have a long history together from our days in the House. And bringing Mr. Zimmerman with you is a bipartisan effort, so I really that means you can bring people together in common cause. That's a good thing. So uh, have you ever visited Trinidad and Tobago? Never, uh -huh. Senator. I've never been. That's not disqualifying, but uh, my colleagues, when uh, uh, Democrats were in the majority, would ask that question of every nominee. So I don't find that disqualifying, but it's always interesting to know. Um, let me ask you, uh, let me just say this. I want to echo to save time the comments of questions that have been raised by others uh, as it is, as it relates to getting Trinidad and Tobago to help us at the OAS on Venezuela, mm -hmm. really important. And I hope you will uh, focus a significant part of your time there trying to get them on the right page in that regard. They're, yes, having, they're having hundreds of people come from Venezuela that are now, um, uh, actually 40,000 Venezuelans are now living in Trinidad and Tobago, so it's, a, it's an issue. Um, secondly, uh, I want to echo what Senator Risch raised. Uh, there's been 100 Trinidadian citizens who have left their country to join the Islamic State uh, over the last few years, and the possibility that trained citizens could come back to Trinidad and Tobago within the Western Hemisphere is a real concern. So I look forward to you actively being engaged in that issue as well with the government of Trinidad and Tobago. Absolutely. Senator. And then uh, lastly, uh, there is a report that the SCL Group, which is a parent company of Cambridge Analytica, the data company that worked on the president's campaign, planned to illegally acquire the internet browsing histories of the citizens of Trinidad and Tobago and use it to create psychological profiles to target voters on behalf of a political party there. This is something this entity has been doing across the world, which we are concerned about because they do it in such a way that's pervasive and undermines democracies. Uh, supposedly, the government of Trinidad and Tobago is now reportedly investigating the activities there. If you are called upon, if our embassy is called upon, I would hope that you would commit to assisting them in any information that they would need. I absolutely would be, right. Senator. Thank you very much. Now, um, Mr. George, uh, 
have you uh, ever visited uh, Uruguay? Yes, sir, numerous times, starting as long ago as 82, oh. 1982. Uh, and uh, what's the most recent time that you visited? Uh, about three years ago. Okay. So uh, I want to echo again OAS participation mm -hmm. of Uruguay as it relates to Venezuela, very important to us, and I hope you will focus a good amount of your time uh, on that uh, in getting them to, to be there. And uh, in the past decade, as part of its Belt uh, and Road Initiative, China has significantly increased its presence in Latin America, but even uh, in smaller countries like Uruguay, China is now Uruguay's largest, largest trading partner, and it's indicated its willingness to sign a free trade agreement. Um, do you see China's growing economic engagement in Uruguay as a threat to the United States? How would you plan to curb China's influence in that country? I do find that the—thank you, sir. Uh, I think that's a very important question. It's something that I have spoken about recently to your staff and others about my concern of what's going on in the country. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, I think it's important to note that the president of Uruguay visited uh, Beijing in 2016. Their foreign minister, came, Chinese foreign minister, came to Montevideo in 2017. Uh, there's been reports that the um, the government has invited President Xi to visit Uruguay during the G20 summit, which, as you know, is going to be in Buenos Aires in uh, in November. And I would make it, I would be a betting man, I would suggest that uh, the president does, of China does not visit uh, Uruguay without some kind of a trade deal or something going to happen, not just to be a tourist. Uh, so I, I am very concerned about it. It is, as you pointed out, a much to the surprise of many, that they are the largest trading partner with Uruguay uh, by a substantial margin, and even bigger than Brazil and and. Argentina, who, which you would think would be their natural, like ours is with Mexico and, and Canada. We're a distant fourth. Uh, I've made an observation that the uh, country has wanted to be involved, uh, expand on infrastructure projects. That's a very important, but it's also important in many Latin American countries. Uh, they've announced a, the desire to build a railroad from the northern border of, uh, with, with Brazil all the way to the port of Uruguay in Montevideo. Uh, unfortunately, I find, to my knowledge, from my reports that I've been given, there's no American company bidding on the project. There's several Chinese companies, one from Spain and a, and a one in a consortium from uh, Uruguay itself. We're not even involved. And yet they're getting ready to build, open up the entire central part of the country to the easy transport of their bountiful agricultural products, which they will then want to increase their sales across the world and redo their port. Now, if that's a billion-dollar project, $800 million to a billion dollars, um, I imagine the person who gets the, the contract is also going to have to have tied financing to it. When you go look around the various competitors, you would think that China was in, being in a very aggressive position to take that responsibility. I understand that the focus in the Western Hemisphere today is, is dominated by Venezuela North, and that's reality. But if you look out 25 to 35 years from now, the strategic issues involved in the Southern Cone will come to haunt us if we leave them behind today. And these are issues that once you make substantial 
investment and once you get the contract to manage the port, a port that is 125 miles further out in the Atlantic than Buenos Aires, strategically it can be important in the future. I understand, uh, you know, even when South Command, it's not on their radar screen. It is on mine and I'm concerned about it and I promise you that as, if confirmed, as your ambassador, I'm going to be in your ear about it whenever I can. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad to hear your views on the Southern Cone. I, I share them. Uh, let me ask you one other question. Do you speak Spanish? Sí. Yo hablo un poco español, pero claro que sí, no soy bilingüe. Un poquito mejor que nada. Let me... Uh, let me uh, Very impressive Portuguese. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, let me just uh, suggest to uh, both of our nominees for ambassadors, uh, uh, when you go to the country you're in, uh, have your staffs help you uh, phonetically pronounce people's names. My name is Menendez, not Mendez. Uh, and so when you go there, I think it's incredibly important in terms of people's respect. Uh, that you are able to phonetically pronounce their names. So let me close with Ms. Breyer. Um, Ms. Breyer, let me go back to um, the, um, I'm going to only ask two questions. I have a whole bunch of others, but I'll submit them for the record. Uh, let me go back to the um, question of the um, TPS. This committee, in its oversight role, reviewed documents regarding the State Department's recommendations to the then secretary, which noted one, these countries lack the capacity to repatriate tens of thousands of individuals and could not guarantee their safe return. Two, in some cases ending TPS designations could undermine efforts to address transnational crime and criminal gangs such as MS-13. Three, repatriating TPS beneficiaries and their accompanying U.S. citizen children vulnerable to become vulnerable to recruitment by violent gangs. So given the severe challenges that Honduras and El Salvador, for example, face, do you believe that individuals whose statuses were terminated would be able to return to safe conditions? Thank you for the question, Senator. The, if I'm confirmed, the, the piece of this that I would work on is the programs that we have in Central America, which, as I mentioned earlier, I believe have the bipartisan support of this committee. Uh, it, this, this year, I believe we're spending roughly $700 million uh, in two of the, of the countries in question to help address some of these underlying conditions. We've begun to see the homicide rates come down, and I think we're beginning to see some improvements in these countries. Uh, the countries themselves, in the Northern Triangle in particular, have committed uh, funds and, and level of effort and political commitment much more than we have to this. And I think, if confirmed, my job will be to work with them to ensure that the conditions are, are present during these uh, drawdown periods. But surely you could not believe, as the nominee for the Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere at this time, that, for example, the more than 215,000 United States-born children would, who would be forced to accompany their TPS beneficiary parents would be able to live in safe conditions right now as we speak. I, I think, Senator, that we're, we're prepared, the Department, and if I'm confirmed uh, in the role, will be prepared to work with these countries to ensure that we do everything possible, working with USAID and the countries in question to ensure the conditions are safe, that the children, if they do return, are documented with their, with their U.S. Let's documents. Say, let's say that we were extending TPS and this wasn't an issue. Would you tell me under testimony before the committee that, th that those countries uh, are safe today? 
Senator, what I would say is that um, in, in this particular context, the, the, the discussion is about whether the conditions that justify the temporary protected status continue to exist. And right, let me change my question. Listen to me closely. Under the testimony here before this committee, do you believe that Honduras, El Salvador, are countries in which we would say that the security situation there, the safety situations there are safe? I, I think, Senator, that uh, the, the department and the administration do everything they can to try and improve the circumstances. I believe there are fundamentally, fundamental conditions in these countries, and they are indeed uh, fundamentally unsafe, but that we have programs in place to try and remedy that over the next 18 months. This, this is where nominees get in trouble. The reality is, is that this, these countries have some of the highest murder rates, not in the hemisphere, but in the world. That's just a reality. There's nothing wrong with stating that reality. It's not a trick question. Let me ask you one other question. On Cuba, uh, under the Obama administration, the State Department raised Cuba from Tier 3 to Tier 2 watch lists on its annual trafficking and persons report, something I think was totally wrong. However, there is widespread consensus that many Cuban doctors are forced to travel and work abroad in conditions that resemble indentured servitude. Now, I appreciate that the president has spoken strongly about human rights abuses in Cuba, but the country remains on the tier two watch list, and the most recent report makes little mention of this issue. Are you aware of the forced labor conditions that many Cuban doctors face when they are conscripted to work abroad? And if confirmed, would you commit to ensure robust attention to this issue in the TIP report? Uh, yes, on both counts, Senator. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for your being here today, and we look forward to uh, continued dialogue on your nominations and confirmations. And so the record of this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Friday. And with that, without objection, the hearing is adjourned.